Uh, we could just do Florida people stories and do a whole podcast on just Florida stories. <laughs> we absolutely could. Uh, we should look into it and see if someone's already doing it. And if not, spin off. <laughs> And welcome to the new episode of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm your other host, Andy. You okay? You ready to go? You're lying back there yawning. Like, yeah, I know. Set. Sorry. Focus I'm sorry. <laughs> my toddler, my little one, didn't go to sleep until 10 o'clock last night. She normally goes to bed at 7.30. Then she was up at 1, and I didn't get her back to sleep till 4. You know, I had a rough night too, Andy. I read until about nine and then I got into bed. I watched a couple episodes of Veep uh, and then I slept, but I woke up like early. It was like six o'clock when I woke up and Kat snuggled up next to me. It was rough. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you had a small child judo chopping you in the throat while she restlessly slept, finally. (laughs) No, because I made very different life choices from you in the last few years. (laughs) I know. (laughs) <laughs> it's a good thing they're cute I don't know what was wrong with her last night I was just walking and pacing the damn house it was brutal every time you try to sit down or lie down she'd freak out aww yeah that's not my life at all I'm very happy about that <laughs> but we should get into our episode for today this is episode yes. 21 Woo! so we're now legal to drink in all 50 states yeah uh, still can't rent a car but the drinking thing that's good mm-hmm. <laughs> so who wants to go first this week uh, i went first last week so why don't you go first sure uh, i actually had some chuckles while i was listening to you talk uh last week's episode about all the books coming out uh, because we're both big readers, because my my story this week is a rabbit hole about the publishing industry. Nice. As you know, I spend my holiday breaks reading. So I keep a list of what I read throughout the year. And for 2018, I managed to knock down 103 books. About 14 of those were over the last two weeks of the year when I was off. Um, and then I'll probably actually ratchet that up to 15 or 16 before i go back to work at the end of this week so i don't know if i've read three books this year so uh again we're all back to those um life choices (laughs) while boxing day shopping for more books i started wondering about the publishing industry uh as i was texting with you one of the books I looked at purchasing this summer for $40 in hardcover was free with the buy two, get one free paperback sale that was on over Boxing Day. And I realized I could have made a racket out of being a publisher. So I wanted to learn more about the industry itself. So that's what spawned this rabbit hole. Let's start at the beginning, though, and take a look at uh, some of the history of publishing as a- an industry. From Britannica's website, And Britannica is celebrating a big year this year. I think it's their 250th anniversary. Wow. They're no longer in print, but they're still online. So long time um, 
contributor to the industry that they're reporting on. They have a, an article called The History of Publishing. The rise of publishing as an industry depends on four things, writing, paper, printing, and the spread of literacy. So the start of that equation likely occurred in the Sumerian culture around the fourth millennium before Common Era. Um, BCE is the newfangled way of saying... Before Christ. Yeah, before Christ. And then AD, Anno Dominus, which is now just uh, BC for... No, CE for Common Era. Jeez, you know what? Asking a historian to relearn really fundamental things like this is just asking for trouble. I'm so lost. BCE before Common Era. Early writing was generally limited to religious and governing or legal purposes, but it quickly got picked up in society for commercial or trade reasons. So that's the writing. The paper part of the equation. Archaeologists think that paper was first developed in China around the first century of the Common Era and then was spread west via Arab traders. And printing seems to have appeared first in China as well around the sixth century of the Common Era. And at that time, it was a form of block printing, though a similar process may have been present as early as the first millennia of before Common Era, but fell out of common use. The Chinese are also credited with, with inventing movable type in the 11th century of the Common Era, but didn't get a lot of traction and it wasn't used widely. So the difference between a movable type and block printing, block printing is just one piece of wood that has the images or the words carved into it. Whereas movable type allows you to individually place letters. So it's, um, it's a more advanced version of printing. Uh, Johann Gutenberg is credited with quote unquote inventing printing Europe, uh, in Europe around 1440 or 50. But there had been block printing in Germany as early as the 1400s, like early 1400s. What Gutenberg actually did invent, though, is the publishing industry. So he developed the processes and techniques that allowed for the ascendancy of metal movable type ink, papers, and the press, and within 50 years, it was common throughout all of Europe. So that brings us to the fourth component required for the development and growth of the publishing industry, and that's the spread of literacy. It also helps that this was the era of the Renaissance and the Reformation, so lots of um, desire on the part of people to learn and become more connected with certain texts, particularly religious texts, and that's also indicative of the rise of the printing as an industry. Um, it gains traction in societies where there's a lot of development or changes happening. So we still see that in developing cultures, developing countries now. Printing presses become more common as changes happen in society. So that's the history of printing. Let's jump ahead a few centuries though and look at the current publishing industry. I'm focused on books, but obviously the industry also comprises magazines and newspapers. I'm just not focusing on them here. So there is an annual data collection process that happens that looks at a whole bunch of different financial reportings from the big publishers out there. And so the data that's currently available is for 2017. And in that year, 2.7 billion units were sold. So 2.7 billion books. And Elise bought a third of them. Yes, she did. <laughs> uh, this generated an estimated $26.23 billion. Between 2016 and 2017, the size of the trade, the trade publishing, so fiction, nonfiction, and religious sales, only increased about $45 million, so 
0.3%, which is fairly flat. Uh, and over the last five years, there's, there's only been $820 million in growth uh, in this kind of area of sales. The remaining um, billions worth of dollars comes from um, instructional manuals and textbooks for all levels, like K through 12 and then university as well. Now that's a racket. Yeah, goddamn right it is. 2017 was the first time that online sales and brick and mortar sales of books equaled out to be about the same. Um, both were valued uh, individually at about $7.5 billion. Online sales broke down thusly. So if you were buying your book online, 43% were in print formats, 27% were ebooks, 16%. 16% that were instructional manuals, 10% were audiobook downloads, and about 3% were audio, uh, physical audiobooks. So I guess people are still buying CDs out there. But yeah. Yeah. <laughs> My new car doesn't even have a CD player in it. I know. So I don't know. <laughs> Adult nonfiction is the fastest growing publication type. It grew, it's grown by almost 30% over the last five years, whereas adult fiction has seen a slight decrease in growth. And children and YA fiction and nonfiction have seen a healthy growth of about 11% in the last five years. So I think I'm not at all surprised given the um, Hunger Games of it all kind of started a big mm. push for young adults adventure books stuff like that well also like there's another swing a generation boom right right now mm, good point so it's a boom bust echo right so now we're almost in another echo generation because the bust eras those people like me are having little kids and i buy books for every single holiday uh, I buy my nephews and nieces books. I buy friends books. Like it's the go-to gift. If you get something from us, you get a book with it. So Makes sense. we have huge, like right now we have, you know, they're not very big shelves, but I have two shelves full of books, but kids' books are very small. So there's yeah. a lot of books jammed into those shelves. <laughs> What's the average price for a kid's book these days? I haven't bought one in oh. forever. They can be anywhere from nine, ten dollars. Holy shit! That's like the low end. It's really hard Whoa. to find anything around that age to like twenty, twenty-five. That's usually like the Christmas hardcover, nice. That's a racket. I know that is a racket. Uh, what I don't understand is why they insist on putting dust covers on children's <laughs> books. Like oh, I know that I've had this rant with you before, but it drives me fucking crazy. Like. When you have a book that's, you know, targeted to a zero to two year old or a three to five year old, why? Why put a dust cover on it? That's just asking for trouble. <laughs> that's just asking for a parent like me to have a stack of fucking dust covers <laughs> hidden in the top of a closet because they aren't going to stay on. So then they just on the floor and then you step on them and you slide. It's just <laughs> why? I don't like dust covers on my books. They drive me crazy. I always yeah. take them off when I read it. Same. So why would you give it to a three-year-old? <laughs> and that's my rant right now. <laughs> but man, like kids' books can be expensive. Like I think every one of the kids' books I bought my kids this year and I bought my nieces and nephews, they were probably on average like 
19 bucks. That is insane. Like, I'm currently reading a 600 page paperback novel that is like wall to wall text to the point where, like, I'm getting ink on my hands because there's just nowhere to put my fingers that's not on text while holding it open at $9.99 yeah, yeah. for that. Now, these are nice, big, like, hard covers with, but still, yes. Still. Like, I think the construction site Christmas Night or Christmas Night construction site that I bought, Dan for Vic- from Victoria, was probably like twenty five ninety nine. This is This is what we need to do. Forget this podcasting noise and let's just get into children's books. I know. <laughs> uh, just a few more stats about the current industry. Audiobooks have been the fastest growing format with almost 30% growth over the last uh, five years. And more than 1 billion paperbacks were sold in 2017, which is more than any of the other formats um, in that year. So that represents more than one third of all units sold were in paperback. I believe it. Paperbacks are usually easier to carry around and yeah. way less expensive than hard covers. Exactly. I like the trade paperbacks, like the slightly bigger paperbacks, if it's a bigger book. Yeah. Which I'm wishing this pocket paperback that I'm currently reading, they had published that way. Yes. Just, like, I'm getting ink all over my hands. It's very stressful. <laughs> Let's say that you have an amazing idea and want to publish either a fiction or a nonfiction work. How would you go about getting that done? Because there are so many authors out there, very few publishing houses will accept an unsolicited manuscript. So the days of popping your work into a manila envelope and mailing it to Penguin are long gone. No longer able to do that. You will not get discovered by an editor at one of these big publishing houses by doing that. To address that problem, the literary agent industry has sprung up. So the literary agent industry is just what it sounds like. These are people who you will use to represent you, to sell your book to a publisher. Um, They're kind of the middleman, and they have the relationships with the publishers so that the publishers don't have to deal with people just mailing in reams of paper to try to get them to read their work. That said, it can also be difficult to get a literary agent to represent you. Uh, There are currently only 30 of them in Canada, and it's a very competitive market. Yeah. The Writers' Union of Canada notes that 80% of published Canadian writers don't have agents at all. So it's not necessary every time, um, but it certainly does make it easier. Depending on the agency that you're working with, you may be able to submit a manuscript, or they'll just ask you to submit query letters and they'll follow up if they want more details about your work. Or they may take you on as a client based off a reference from somebody else that they've already worked with. Before approaching a prospective agent, though, make sure your manuscript is polished and basically finished. They get a lot of requests a year, so they're not going to waste their time copy editing or trying to understand what it is you're writing. Pretty much you have to have a finished product if you're looking for a literary agent. So you have a book, you have an agent, and now you need a publisher. What can you expect from that process? As its base function, the publisher is responsible for bringing your work to the public. They help develop your work, and they do that by copy editing, editing, and formatting it. They'll produce the print of the the book itself, they'll market it for you, and they'll distribute it. Early in your relationship with a publisher, you'll work out things like bonuses, royalties, and or the percentages of sales based off of how you'll get paid, as well as any intellectual property rights and ownership for both the printed and the online version of the book. 
The editing stage is really tricky. Depending on the size of your publisher, it may be a one and done type thing. If it's a small house, they don't have a lot of time to dedicate to each work, so you'll get one pass of the book, and that's that. If it's a larger uh, organization or they're putting a lot of money into your work, you may get multiple uh, editing rounds. Depending on how much power the author has, an editor may not have a whole lot of ability to change a book. So case in point, uh, J.K. Rowling's The Casual Vacancy was the first book out after the Harry Potter series. It is basically unreadable as far as I'm concerned. It really reads like J.K. Rowling was swinging big dick with her publisher at the point, and nobody wanted to tell her, hey, J.K., this is not good. <laughs> you really need to edit. <laughs> well, that's the problem with almost all Anne Rice after Interview with the Vampire is she doesn't let anybody edit her work. Yeah. So that's why you end up with three pages about a fucking chair. Yeah. So editing is not bad. Everyone should be open to constructive criticism, even the big, big names. Where your book appears in a bookstore is negotiated by your publisher. Are you going to be on the featured table when you first walk into the place? Or are you buried in the alphabetical stacks in the back? A publisher is the one who handles all that. And so that is a great person to have in your corner kind of helping you get your product out there. So while it's it can be hard to get an established publisher to work with you, the benefits they bring in can certainly make it worth it. That said, you can always self-publish, and I don't want to step on your toes here, Andy, because I know this is a, a topic that you like. So I just want to give you some stats on the current state of the self-published <laughs> industry. Uh, in 2017, there were over 1 million books that were self-published. Uh, 879,000 were printed. While 130,000 were ebooks. So that actually surprised me that there were more self published paper books than ebooks. I know. You would have think that ebooks are easier to publish, so people would, yeah, anyway. <laughs> That's a substantial growth over the last five years, so from 2017. Overall, there's been a 45% growth and a 34% growth in actual printed materials. So that's almost, the industry's almost doubled itself in five years. That's insane. Yeah. There's actually been a decline in self-published ebooks between 2013 and 2017. Um, there's been about a 12% decline in the number of those. Mm. I cannot explain that. That's counterintuitive to what I would have expected to have happened. I know. Because we're here for the giggles, let's look at some of the worst books published in order to encourage everyone with a story to tell it. I mean, you cannot be worse than some of these people who have published, so... Do not let your self-doubt stop you. Do you want to publish, but self-publishing isn't for you and finding a literary agent seems like a lot of work? Well, then you should just be a celebrity so that the publishing houses will come to you and just give you money. <laughs> there is a really fun list on Goodreads um, entitled, How Did These People Get Publishing Deals? or something like that. I'll post it. And I was just looking at some of the really weird and odd books that have been published by celebrities. For example, did you know that Snooky from Jersey Shore is a fiction writer? <laughs> Your complete look of like dispiritedness is <laughs> really delightful right now. Oh dear God. <laughs> that hair is fiction. This is a lot, but I would like to read you the, the plot summary here. Oh dear. So the book is entitled A Shore Thing. So get it instead of a shore. Yeah, okay. Giovanna Gia Spumanti and her cousin Isabella Bella Rizzoli are going to have the sexiest summer ever. While they couldn't be more different, 
Pint-sized Gia is a carefree, outspoken party girl, and Bella is a tall, slender athlete who always holds her tongue. For the next month, they're ready to poof up their hair, put on their stilettos, and soak up all the seaside heights New Jersey has to offer. Hot guidos, cool clubs, fried Oreos, and lots of tequila. So far, Gia's summer is on fire. Between nearly burning down their rented bungalow, inventing the popular tan tags at the Tantastic Salon where she works, and rescuing a shark on the beach, she becomes a local celebrity overnight. Luckily, she meets the perfect guy to help her keep the flames under control. Firefighter Frank Rosie is exactly her type. Big, tan, and Italian. But is he tough enough to handle Gia when things really heat up? Oh, dear God. Let's go back to the popular tan tags, which, wow. And she saves a shark from the beach. <laughs> Double wow. <laughs> so that is the fiction side of things. Uh, there is also the nonfiction. Lots of celebrities writing their memoirs, biographies, stuff like that. Uh, one example is Kris Jenner. She wrote a book called Kris Jenner and All Things Kardashian. And it tackles things like Chris's affair while she was married to Rob Kardashian, the O.J. Simpson crime and trial. And she's brave enough to share with readers the, quote, one failure she had in her life, which is the time she lost money on selling a townhome. So much courage. No words. <laughs> Your daughter's famous for starring in a sex tape. You do not have one failure in life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Speaking of the O.J. Simpson crime and trial... There is the book, If I Did It, by O.J. Simpson. So in 2006, HarperCollins announced that they'd be publishing this fictional-slash-hypothetical account of the Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman murder, authored by O.J. Simpson himself. And the public went nuts. Who at HarperCollins thought this was a good idea? I know. Everyone lost their shit over it. Uh, Simpson had been in default on the settlement that he owed the Goldman family for the death of their son, which in 2006 amounted to $38 million with interest. So the idea that he would profit from this work didn't sit well with them either. Like, the public hated it, and so did the Goldman family. As a result, they pushed the issue in court, and a Florida bankruptcy court awarded the intellectual property right to the Goldman family, allowing them to publish the work and put the profits towards the settlement that Simpson owed them. And Simpson wouldn't get a dime from all of it. Absolutely thumbs up. Since the Goldman family owned the book, they were also able to add the subtitle Confessions of a Killer to the published work. <laughs> no, it was a really good fuck you. Uh, in addition to helping pay down the uh, settlement that O.J. Simpson owes the family, part of profits go to the charity that the Goldman set up in Ron's name. And they actually encourage people to buy and read the book since they view it as a way to get the long-awaited confession that they know they're owed. As much as the entire world hates the fact that he wrote this book, it's actually going to good use at this point. Yeah, well, he's not getting the money, right? So, Yes. So are you not a celebrity and suffering from imposter syndrome so crippling that you're not sure you could ever get published? Well, my friends, in a world where Trump can be president and the following can be published, I don't think you have anything to worry about, and you should go out and follow your dreams to be an author. The Literary Review has an annual competition to see who has written the worst sexual description in an otherwise decent work of fiction every year. The award has been given out every year since 1993, 
and the purpose is to, quote, draw attention to poorly written, perfunctory, or redundant passages of sexual description in modern fiction. The prize is not intended to cover pornographic or expressly erotic literature. It was founded by the literary critic Rhoda Kenning and the editor of the Literary Review at the time, Auberon Waugh. This year's winner was James Fry for his work, Katerina. Does the name James Fry sound familiar? Yeah. It should. He wrote the book A Million Little Pieces <gasps> in the early 2000s. Oh, yes, yes. Oprah. Oh, she hated yeah. him after. Oh, yeah. This book was supposed to be a true story based on his struggles with addiction. Uh, and then it came out after Oprah had flogged it to death on her show and with her book club that, in fact, it was largely an invented story. And James Fry had to do a mea culpa tour through lots of different TV shows. And Oprah was really clearly pissed off at him on the air, which was delightful. But anyway, so Katerina contains several passages that made it this year's winner. But I am going to fight my repressed wasp upbringing to read you this one of these passages. Buckle up. <laughs> okay. In my defense, there's also really poor, there's a lack of grammar punctuation in this passage. Here we go. Quote. I'm hard and deep inside her, fucking her on the bathroom sink, her tight little black dress still on, her thong on the floor, my pants at my knees, our eyes locked, our hearts and souls and bodies locked. Come inside me. Come inside me. Come inside me. <laughs> Blinding, breathless, shaking, overwhelming, exploding, white, God, I come inside her, my cock throbbing, we're both moaning, eyes, hearts, souls, bodies, one, one, white, God. Come, come, come. I close my eyes, let out my breath. Come. I lean against her, both breathing hard. I'm still inside her, smiling. She takes my hands, lifts them, and places them around her body. She puts her arms around me. We stay still and breathe, hard inside her, tight and warm and wet around me. We breathe. She gently pushes me away. We look into each other's eyes. She smiles. Wow. Yes. <laughs> Your delivery of that is also awesome. Hence my laughing halfway through. Uh, yeah, I was trying to figure out how I was going to deliver it without uh, dying of shame. So there we go. Literary Review included the following statement with the award when it announced the winner. James Fry prevailed against a strong all-male shortlist by virtue of the sheer number and length of dubious erotic passages in his book. The multiple scenes of sustained fantasy in Katerina could have won Fry the award many times over. Ooh. <laughs> I would like to point out that the literary review points out that the all-male shortlist <laughs> was involved. <laughs> uh, James Fry responded to his win, and he takes a lot of the fun out of this, which disappoints me. Uh, he responded, I am deeply honored and humbled to receive this prestigious awards. Kudos to all my distinguished fellow finalists. You have all provided me with many hours of enjoyable reading over the last year. Which, no fuck you, we were laughing at you, not with you. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel bad for your wife. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's end on a positive note, though, and look at the best books of 2018, according to the New York Times. And every author wants to get on the New York Times bestsellers list. This is obviously a wildly subjective topic, and I'm not going to give you the list of all of them, just a couple of them. 
Uh, the first one is a work of fiction called The Perfect Nanny by Leila Slimani. Uh, it is fiction, like I said. I've read it. It's translated from a French novel. And the translation is pretty obvious in some spots, which makes it a little hard to kind of keep up with the flow. But it's pretty good. It's about um, a woman who is nannying for a couple in Paris, and she gets overly attached to the kids mm. involved. And it gets a little weird uh, and uh, sad. So it's a, it's a good book. There's a book called There, There by Tommy Orange. It's a fiction. I'd like to read this one. I haven't yet, and I haven't even heard about it. Uh, it's about Native Americans from California who are traveling to a powwow. And the New York Times kind of describes it as a modern take on the Chaucer tales. Mm-hmm. So disparate people coming together to head off to a certain uh, event or place. Uh, in the nonfiction category, there's a book called American Prison by Shane Bauer. And this one, the subtitle looks, makes it really interesting. A reporter's undercover journey into the business of punishment. He worked for four months at a private prison in Louisiana in 2014. And he reports on kind of the shadiness that is the imprisonment industry complex. So I'd be interested in picking that up for a read. Another nonfiction that I'd be interested in reading is Educated by Tara Westover. It's the memoir of the youngest child of a family of seven, and the family were survivalists. And she was barely homeschooled. By homeschooled, I mean taught to read the Bible and went on to get a PhD in history from Cambridge. Another interesting one uh, looking to pick up. Uh, another nonfiction here, How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. And he wrote The Omnivore's Dilemma, which was an interesting read. The subtitle for this is What the New Science of Psychedelics Teaches Us About Consciousness, Dying, Addiction, Depression, and Transcendence. Uh, Scott Mosier was talking about this one on Smodcast recently, and it sounded really good. Uh, the author basically takes some psychedelics in a very controlled environment and then writes about the experiences that he goes through Mm. afterwards. That sounds good. And the last one that I'd heard a little bit about, uh, but more details prepping for this episode is called Small Fry. It's the memoir by Lisa Brennan Jobs, who is the daughter of Steve Jobs. And apparently Steve Jobs was a real asshole. Uh, not surprised what she, yeah what she reveals in her memoir paints a picture of what it was like to grow up with him where he was emotionally abusive uh when he wasn't neglecting her so um, way to stay classy yeah <laughs> yeah so some interesting books there from last year that i'm looking forward to reading uh to complement your list of books coming up to read so my takeaway from this story is uh, publishing is a great racket to get in on, either as the author or as the uh, publisher, but more so as the publisher. Malcolm Gladwell had that book a few years ago, 10,000 Hours, the idea that if you do anything for 10,000 hours, you're basically an expert. I think I passed that mark quite some time ago, so I would like to know what career I could have as a reader. <laughs> because I am well-prepped and primed for that career. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I could probably also do that from my pre-children era, but... (laughs) Yeah. I'm still trying to get through my... Like, I'm still attempting to get through all of the Agatha Christie's. I'll do it at some point. But uh, I have read a couple of other things in between there. Um, How was 
I meant to ask you, how was The Clockmaker's Daughter? Um, so that was a book that I read uh, over this holiday by Kate Morton. It was okay. Um, it jumps around timelines a lot. Which she almost always does. Yeah, I realized she was the author of The Lake House, yeah. which probably should have clued me to that. But uh, the timelines go from like the 1890s to 2017, and there's like four or five different timelines, and there's some overlap and there's some isn't. And so that can be a little disjointed to follow. And I think some of the character development doesn't happen like it could have or should have mm. because of that. Um, but it was a good story, poorly titled. One of the characters is a clockmaker's daughter, but they rarely talk about that. <laughs> like they rarely talk about the fact that her father made clocks. I think they mentioned it like three times in like a four hundred page novel. <laughs> I like I haven't read the Lake House and this one. I gave that one to my mom for Christmas, the clockmaker's daughter. But I I've read mm-hmm. all of her other ones, like the Forgotten Garden, House at Riverton. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, that's her. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I I loved. The Forgotten Garden and um, oh, what was the other one? Shit. Um, I I loved her other books, and I do have somewhere here the Lake House mm-hmm. from when it came out in uh, paperback. Must be a while ago now. Yeah. So again, I haven't read <laughs> too much. If it's not on ebook that I can't read while someone's trying to fall asleep on me, I probably won't be reading it very much. But. Uh, mm-hmm. I quite liked her earlier work. All right. So mine is about space. Ooh. Yeah. So I got onto this topic after reading about the New Horizons spacecraft, mm-hmm. which on New Year's Day, the spacecraft completed the flyby of Alta Terma, the icy celestial object that's floating just outside of our helosphere. Um, that probably, they think, uh, dates back to the formation of the solar system. Hmm. This is the farthest object we have any sort of pictures of. We've ever done a flyby. And they just have... So they used to think it looked like a grain of sand, but it actually looks like a like a two snowballs together. It's right. two round it's objects. Like a snowman. Yeah. yeah, it almost looks like a snowman. Uh, so that was really neat to, to read about. And also really cool. And then I stumbled upon this older article from 2007 um, from Bob McDonald, the guy from Quirks and Quirks on CBC. Okay. So it was looking at like robots that go where we cannot go Mm -hmm. and do all of these exploratories that would be way too expensive and way too hard for humans to do because it takes a long time. These robots, when they put in for funding so nasa creates a hey let's do this and when they put in a funding grant usually they have the core objective in mind but they want to do more so they overbuild these spacecrafts because to get original funding for say a four planetary exploration is hard but when you can say okay we're going to do two planets we're going to do two moons this is what we're going to do and they say okay here's your billion dollars because mm-hmm. um, these things cost like hundreds of millions and billions of dollars. And then they uh, go, okay, we're so our five years are up. This spacecraft is still going, so let's do this, right. which is what they intended to do all along. So the biggest example of this is my favorite spacecraft, the Voyager 1 and 2. Okay. So Voyager 1 
uh, wa- and Voyager 2 were both launched in 1977 and are still going. Oh. So their original mission was to do flyovers of Saturn, its rings, and its biggest moon, Titan, Jupiter, and its biggest moon, Lo. Or mm-hmm. do I got those mixed up? Anyways, the two moons, Titan and Lo, were done, um, and the Saturn and uh, Jupiter. But what intentionally, when they lined the spacecrafts up when they launched them, they launched them in a certain way because they knew that at one point these four planets would line up. It only happens once in every 175 years so that the gravitational pull of Saturn and Jupiter would then launch the spacecraft Voyager 2 into Neptune and Uranus. Hmm. So they had already always planned to do this, but their original funding for the four planetary exploration got denied. So they scaled it back to two and they got approved. So after they were done their five years, they decided, hey, because they put an extra large fuel tank on both so that they could keep running. Which is what they do, because uh, if you look at the original Mars rover, Spirit and Opportunity, they both ran for, one ran for six years, one ran for 14 or 15 years, which was way longer than its original three years. Um, most of the things are, like the Cassia, which is the one they crashed into Saturn last year, mm-hmm. ran twice as long as it, it was originally planned, because that was supposed to be a short five-year project, and it turned into a 12, I think, year before they crashed it because they knew it was running out of fuel. So they wanted to do a controlled crash so that it wouldn't uh, crash and impact potential life. Okay. So they made they made it, they crashed it in such a way that I believe it burned up predominantly on entry. Okay. Actually, it's an interesting, Netflix has a series called Seven Days Out. Uh-huh. And th- them crashing that space probe into Saturn is one of the Seven Day Out episodes. Oh. Cool. So, Voyager was originally sent to go to Saturn, and then they managed to make this a um, 40-something-year project. 41 years, because both are still going and still sending back. But what's funny is these two are, like, perfect time capsules of the 70s. Yeah. They still have 8-track recorders. <laughs> they have the famous golden discs on board. But... It's pretty cool to think of these two are now out in our helosphere, or actually outside of of our solar system. Um, you and I have experience putting together funding requests for projects. That is the absolute goal of everyone's RFP proposal submission is, sure, it's only for a three-year project, but we're really going to try to get 40 years out of it. Like... <laughs> Yeah. Way to go, NASA nerd. So they keep going for more funding and they get approved because it's like smaller chunks of funding, right? They have all of the big work creating these things and launching them is already done. Yeah. Now they just need a certain amount of money to monitor. Yeah. So they're just doing the like time materials staffing costs. Yeah. The twin spacecrafts, Voyager 1 and 2, were launched by NASA, as I said, in 1977 from Cape Canaveral, Florida. They are monitored by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in California. And they had a two-planet mission, which they uh, completed in five years. And they actually 
did some of the first shots of Saturn and Jupiter. So they really did remap what people thought of these two planets and how the rings around Saturn were combined and the sort of the two moons that they looked at. So right now they are, they did Uranus and Neptune, Voyager 2 did, because they were able to sort of slingshot them from Jupiter and uh, onto those, which is funny when I tell you exactly the timeline. So they were launched in 1977. Mm-hmm. They reached, um, in 1980, they reached Saturn, and but they didn't reach Neptune until 2000 or 1999. Wow. And then they Yikes. didn't leave our helisphere till 2012. Yikes. So 2012 is when they actually started leaving our solar system. So they were launched in 77 and they're still moon. going, but it takes a long time. It's, it's so funny because like from earth here to moon, isn't that long from here to Mars is what is it? Nine months or something of flight, but here to that end of the helosphere is a friggin' long, long time, which it wouldn't probably take as long now because we have the dis- new discovery, which I was talking about, which is already outside of our helosphere. So they mm-hmm. it's probably got some slightly better technology, but uh, with the technology that was available in the 70s and using the trajectory and the gravity assist, that's why it's taking so long. It's still really fucking pr- impressive that they managed in the 70s to do the math on that, to get it up and out. And in an alignment that only happens one every 175 years, think back to Tomb Raider 1, <laughs> where you know it was all about the planetary alignment. Yes. Which only happens every 2,000 years. Well, this one happens once every 175. But so they were like, we're going to like pinpoint this because that alignment still didn't happen until like the 80s. Yeah. So they had to like pre plan where it was going to be at that, like, uh, the math on that and the math uh, from the movie Hidden Figures really drove home to me the fact that I am just not a smart person <laughs> at all. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I can't do math. Mm-mm. They got to, as I said, so brought Voyager 1 to Jupiter on March 5th, 1979, and Saturn on 19- November of 1980, followed by Voyager 2 to Ju- Jupiter on 1979 and Saturn on 1981. Then Voyager 1 uh, went closely past the largest moon, Titan, and behind Saturn's rings. And then that bent the spacecraft's path northward out of the elliptical plane. So after it did the pass of Titan, it sort of slingshotted itself out. So it was not going to pass any other planets. Oh, okay. And then Voyager 2 was aimed to fly right by Saturn at a point that would automatically send the spacecraft into the direction of Uranus, which is why they did that. So after Voyager 2 successful Saturn encountered, it was then shown that it would likely be able to fly onto Uranus, which was the whole point, with all the instruments functioning, which they already knew. Mm -hmm. And then NASA provided additional funding to complete the operation, which that was the whole point. Yeah. Then the Jet Propulsion Laboratory did a Uranus flyby. And then they authorized the Neptune leg, so they used Uranus to slingshot it into Neptune. So Voyager 2 encountered Uranus in 1986, returning detailed photos and other data on the planet, its moons, its magnetic field, and its dark rings. Voyager 1, at the same time, meanwhile, continued to press outward, conducting studies of interplanetary space. Eventually, its instruments may be the first of any spacecraft to sense the hello. 
pause, the boundary between the end of the sun's magnetic influence and the beginning of interstellar space. Oh. So yeah, it was like Voyager 1 was this first spacecraft to really like go where nobody had gone before, sort of, <laughs> you know, very Star Trek, but, you know, the final frontier, which really space isn't the final frontier because we still don't know a lot about like deep, the deep ocean. Yeah. Like the very deep ocean. Like there's still lots of places that are very unexplored on Earth as well, mm-hmm. but that's a whole nother discussion. So following Voyager's 2 close approach to Neptune in August of 1989, the spacecraft flew southward following the elliptical plane and onto a course that would take it to into interstellar's interstellar space. When NASA was like, oh, look at this. You guys are so smart. You built this machine that's now going to also go into interstellar space. They changed the mission's name to the Voyager Interstellar Mission, yeah. and they're now still going. Voyager 1 has crossed into Hellosphere and is leaving the solar system, rising above the elliptical plane at an angle of about 35 degrees at a rate of about 520 million kilometers a year. Hmm. Voyager 1 entered interstellar space on August 2012. So remember, that one left the planes of any planets back in the early 80s. So it entered the interstellar space on... 2012 and Voyager 2 was also headed out and I think it was just this year 2018 it doesn't mention in this article but uh, 2018 that they think it also has just breached the hello pause Hmm. that sort of little space between where you start getting out of the sun's magnetic field and into interstellar space so it's still sending back data I'm going to ask what's the, the lag on getting data back from these things um, I don't know what the lag on the data getting back from this one is. I know that it's probably a good day because the newer one was 10 hours, but they were saying that the one that I was talking about first is 10 hour lag, but it's going to take them two years to get all the data from that flyby uh, of the snowman because it takes so long for the machine to process and then send it back. Right. Makes sense. So yeah, this one is still sending back data uh, on the regular um, but it's still pretty basic what it can bring send back because it's 1977. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, what's pretty cool about, like, this one is it's pretty well known because it's one of the first ones and it's still going. And it was one of those first ones to do something really cool. Like, as I said, it's sort of this time capsule, which is one of the reasons that I was onto it because they mentioned it on the history of new music, like 10, ra- uh, 60 random facts. Mm-hmm. Is that it, it still has an eight track, yeah, player on it, which is like who has an eight track player anymore? Well, it was the height of technology at the time. <laughs> it was. So Voyager is also created co- holding on to this golden record. So each Voyager spacecraft probe carries a gold-plated audiovisual disc. Should the spacecraft ever be found by intelligent life forms? Mm-hmm. The disc carries photos of Earth and its life forms, a range of scientific information, spoken greetings from people such as the Secretary General of the United Nations, the President of the United States, and a melody of sounds of Earth, which includes sounds of whales, a baby crying, waves breaking on shore, a collection of work, of music, which includes works by Mozart, 
Blind Willie Johnson, Chuck Berry, and a bunch of others. They have a bunch of obscure Eastern and Western um, classics, Mm -hmm. as well as like world music. So it's actually quite this eclectic work. Yeah. And the recording also contains greetings in 55 different languages. Hmm. So should the Voyager ever be uh, found by aliens, uh, they can look at these golden discs and A-track players and go, wow, look at this very advanced technology. We can take over their planet because they're clearly disjointed and have no united front. That's what they're going to think. That is true. (laughs) That is very true. And they wouldn't be totally wrong. No. So <laughs> I personally would welcome our new galactic overlords if it meant no more Trump, but that's just me. So yeah, that is my rabbit hole down Voyager one and two, which is just a really cool. Uh, I'll post some links. You can see what it's still doing. The jet propulsion page is pretty fun. And yeah, it's done some pretty cool work. Like you think of 1977 wouldn't really be relevant, but it really was really important to understanding these planets back in the day. And the work from these uh, dictated works that went on with other space probes and stuff. Without the Voyager, we wouldn't be having things that are taking pictures of objects created when our solar system was born. I think it's really easy to dismiss some of these earlier scientific efforts um, because, I mean, we laugh at them and say they used to have computers that took up whole rooms, whereas we have the same computing power in our phones, in our pocket. But then you look at cases like this where they literally shot a man into space using slide rules. Like, we cannot turn our nose up at earlier generations because 40 years on their tech is still running whereas some of the new tech is so delicate that it can't survive some of this stuff like (laughs) well my phone can't hold a charge yeah uh i had to replace my fairly new dishwasher because the motherboard in it had gone kaput versus the fact that we kept a dishwasher alive for 10 15 years when i was a kid so dishwashers and intergalactic space all it comes down to is uh they don't make them like they used to (laughs) oh no 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 think like this thing was voyagers were made when k-cars were popular You don't see many K-cars on the road, so the good old Reliant K. (laughs) Um, There was a, was it the first Tenet Doctor Who episode the Voyager came into play with the plot? Because on it, they also included information about the blood types of human blood types. Yeah, that was a space probe that they had put up, but I think, yes, there was uh, some nods to Voyager with, like, the science information and stuff. Because that one, the British had sent up one that had a vial of blood. Ah. Wait, in yeah. real life or in the Who-universe? In the Who-universe. Oh, I thought it was based off of, like, I thought they told, so the, like, flat up said it was the Voyager. No, it was this British space probe. All right. I don't know. Does Britain even have a space program that would send up their own probes? It does in the world where Doctor Who is their British space program. <laughs> it's true, but like in the real world, <laughs> they're not a country I associate with space programs. True. But it has been a big year for space, too. We talked about it on our New Year's show where they found water on yeah. Mars. Again, bring it back to Doctor Who. You and I are worried about it. No one else seems to be worried about it, which is just foolish. Uh, the Chinese just announced that they landed on the dark side of the moon. 
and Pink Floyd fans rejoiced. So it's it's been a big year for for space exploration. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think we don't necessarily often hear about it unless we're particularly looking at those uh, headlines. But um, it's kind of interesting and and neat. Uh, we watch the TV show Mars, which is sort of a half fictitious, half real look at the sort of SpaceX program mm-hmm. trying to get people on Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like a fictionalized look at what could happen. Um, this year it's been really heavy on like environmental activist overtones because there's a second company up there drilling and oh. on Mars. And it's like not the scientific endeavor that it was supposed to be, but it's actually not a bad show. Um, it's sort of, the fictitious is intercut with like real um, interviews with people oh. talking about real life situations in which they're looking at on the show. Hmm. Cool. So how getting people to Mars, how they look at things like Antarctica and, and sort of the harsher parts of our climate to see how people would could survive. You could not pay me enough money to be one of the volunteers to go to Mars to be the first humans there. Uh, mm I understand that I am a homebody to the nth degree and all that, but no, not for me. I'm happy on this little rock. Yeah, I I couldn't do it either. Like, there's no part of that which sounds fun to me. Not at all. Not even a little bit. Not even to be able to say that I was the first who did it. No. No. Mm -mm. (laughs) I'm cool. (laughs) And that's why you and I are friends, because we're never going to Mars together. Well, it's also like not only does not go the going to Mars and being stuck in a terraformed tent for the rest of my life unless I put on a suit to go outside I, in a climate that is so harsh it's basically trying to kill me twenty four seven. Yeah, I mean, if we wanted to do that, we would just go to Australia. Like, come on, I love Australia. I've been to Australia. Um, but the thought of spending like nine months in a spacecraft. Yeah. We're like, no. all that's between you and like certain death is like one like tiny pinhole. No, thanks. I'm good. No. <laughs> that's, that's cutting the I'm cool here on Earth. <laughs> yeah. So are we ready to move on to our Florida man story? Uh, yes, and you have this one, right? Yes, I have this week's uh, Florida Man uh, wonderfulness. This story comes from Monroe County, Florida. The article title, Florida Man Locks Keys in Car to Keep Cops from Searching It. <laughs> yeah, real Mensa uh, individual here. A Florida man thought he had a foolproof plan to keep deputies from searching his vehicle on Christmas Eve. He ended up spending Christmas in the Monroe County Jail. After being pulled over for driving 70 miles per hour in a 40 mile per hour zone, 40-year-old Charles Albert Garcia locked his keys inside his car when deputies told him that they would search the inside. His plans unraveled, however, when a towing company unlocked the Lexus, allowing investigators to find cocaine, heroin, meth, pills, and marijuana inside, the Miami Herald reports. Deputies said Garcia claimed the Lexus belonged to his father and that he was returning home with Christmas presents. When they asked for his license, he admitted that it was suspended, but said he would soon be getting it back. And authorities found that Garcia's license had in fact been suspended in April 2012 and that he had been arrested three times for driving while it was suspended. 
Garcia faces several felonies for drugs and driving with a suspended license, as well as misdemeanors for marijuana possession and obstruction. He was bonded out on December 26th. So what is this about 40-year-old men making poor life choices? Uh, this one blamed his father. So they got that going for That'll be a real fun conversation at the Christmas dinner table. That's for sure. Yeah. And uh, who bonded him out? <laughs> but it was Alexis as well. <laughs> huh. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. Criminal mastermind. You can't get into my car if it's locked. So I'm going to just chuck my keys in there and hit the lock button. <laughs> uh, suckers. Well, you want to tell the people where they can find us? Sure. Um, if you're so inclined, you can find us on our website at rabbitholespodcast.com. There you can see our blogs, which is updated weekly with something both Elise and I would like to talk about, but it might not be a giant rabbit hole. Or it might just be our personal opinion on something, which basically all this is, is anyway. Uh, you can also on our website find our uh, support tab. You can find our Patreon page through there. You can support us at any level that you feel uh, appropriate. And we would love you to s- love for you to support us. We have lots of great things uh, for each level. Um, and the higher you go, the more amazing we become. Uh, you also have our merch tab on there, which you can find uh, our link to our Redbubble page, which will let you buy some fantastic rabbit holes merchandise. You can also find us on social media. On Facebook, we are Rabbit Holes Podcast page. On Instagram, we are Rabbit Holes Podcast. And Twitter, we are at Rabbit Holes Pod. Yes. <laughs> Yay, I got them all right. <laughs> I do nothing with Twitter. That's all Elise. Yeah, I don't blame you. It's a barren hellscape of terribleness i'm not gonna lie if you would like to reach us you can also email us at rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com send us uh an email about a rabbit hole that you like to explore that you're interested in uh or that you would like us to take a, a stab at for you on the show uh also if you could take some time to leave us a good rating or a good review on itunes stitcher or wherever you're downloading this uh, podcast that would be great help get our name out there and if anyone happens to say within earshot of you i'm looking for new podcast content let them know about us uh, people get their podcast recommendations from people that they know so uh, if you can help us spread the word about the show that would be great or even if they don't ask just obnoxiously say have you heard of the rabbit holes podcast yeah. strangers at the bus at the bar if you're in the library just tap on some shoulders uh, be the good work the world needs. And uh, that's all for this week. So thank you all for listening. And if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Bye. Bye, guys. 